Good morning, my AOWs. Today's episode is going to be all about non-hormonal options for menopausal symptoms. And the reason I am going to do this episode today is because I'm delighted I get to speak at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which is the neighbor of Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I'm going to be speaking to their clinicians about managing menopausal symptoms in breast cancer patients and breast cancer survivors. And in this talk, I'm going to assume that hormone therapy is contraindicated now, while there are special considerations, we're going to just go under the assumption for you know 80% or more of women undergoing uh, cancer, especially breast cancer, that they're estrogen sensitive and we're not going to use hormone therapy. Now, if you've listened to my show before, you know that I have actually done some great episodes uh, diving into this a little bit deeper. The one I did with Dr. Blooming is excellent, but we're going to make the assumption we're not going to use hormone therapy in this episode today and in this talk that I'm giving actually the same day you are listening to this Wednesday, April 6th. So let's get into it. Hi, and welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. To calm the body's stress response to bothersome hot flashes. Now with the Evia app, that's simply E-V-I-A in the app store, you will learn to soothe both day and night symptoms without the use of medications. You'll be able to track and evaluate your symptoms and so much more. They have a core five-week program that is Dr. Hirsch approved for at-home support. Start your seven-day free trial at eviamenopause.com slash Heather, which is E-V-I-A-M-E-N-O-P-A-U-S-E.com slash Heather, or check the link in the description to get started. Hi, and welcome back to the show. As always, I hope you're listening to this while you're doing something fun, out on a walk, walking the dog, taking a drive, or doing chores, which actually I was just reading something online that said that the majority of people listen to podcasts when they're doing chores. So if you're doing chores, I got you. Anything to make them a little bit more enjoyable. So in this episode, I want to talk about the non-hormonal treatment options for managing the most common menopausal symptoms. And we're going to break this down into hot flashes, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, and low libido, low desire. There are many other symptoms such as brain fog, low mood, and trouble with sleep that I'm going to try and throw in at the end, but I don't want to keep you forever and ever. And if you just listened to the intro, then you know, I am actually working away at this presentation I'm giving to Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And, uh, it is also important. I know I have a lot of listeners who can't take hormone therapy. It is important to know that there are options besides for hormone therapy, not just for cancer survivors, but for other women who have other contraindications or for whom don't want to accept the risks of hormone therapy. And in, in, in my world, if you're a follower of mine, there is no shame in the game. There's no shame in what you do at menopause. There's no one right answer. It has to be individualized and it has to be what works for you. 
Now, because I want you to get a ton out of this, I'm not going to spend a ton of time going over over the counter options, lifestyle and supplements, which I know you might want to hear about, but I have a ton of that coming up in my book. So my book, haha, I'm so excited. The manuscript for the book is due May 1st in a month. So me and Stacy Colino, my writer are on the grind getting this done. I'm really so excited to start podcasting and talking a little bit more about my book and actually what's in it and in actually kind of a different and novel way of thinking about menopause. And I've even really talked about, I may have alluded to it on the podcast, but certainly totally different than I'm just so excited. Anything that we've really thought about before. And I've been doing my very best to kind of keep this, you know, novelty of this book, like under wraps. But man, am I really, really excited as we're working on the very final chapters and really kind of hopefully wrapping up the the major bulk of the writing part of it. I'm sure I will update you as we go forth with editing and things like that. Hopefully you will see this book in your hands um, early next year. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Anyways. So again, there's no shame in the game. We're going to talk about hormone therapy and non-hormone therapy, over-the-counter lifestyle, and a whole bunch of stuff in between in, in the book. So anyways, I've been preparing for this talk that I'm giving to my oncology colleagues here in Boston, and I'm really, really excited to kind of go over some of these things because a lot of you have been asking about like a course for breast cancer survivors, and that is something that I do want to build. My current course that you may have heard about me talk about at nauseum, the Reclaiming Menopause Masterclass, is really geared for women who want to put the pieces of hormone therapy together with my support, but I am, you know, trying to think about having a separate course. That's kind of a huge undertaking of having two totally separate courses, but I do feel as though one is equally as important as the other. So, you know, I wanted to start my talk when I speak with the oncologists of this whole idea of how, you know, originally I wanted to be an oncologist and, um, that was always my dream. I always wanted to take care of women. Then as I went through medical school training, I thought, well, to take care of women, I have to deliver babies. So I went to OBGYN. If you listen to my episode from last week, why I love being a menopause doctor, you'll realize that actually I thrived in sitting and consulting and talking and talking and talking and talking. Hence why I have a podcast. And so uh, I switched into internal medicine and then did, um, and then did a fellowship in women's health. But before that fellowship, I really thought I was going to be an oncologist. So I was thinking about this presentation that I'm giving on Wednesday, and I think it's kind of ironic or funny that now, you know, as a menopause doctor, a good amount of what I do, not all of it for sure is prescribed hormone therapy, but we need to take away the idea that hormone therapy and breast cancer go hand in hand because that is really, really not true. But again, we're going to go into the assumption for for the rest of this episode that we're just not going to use hormone therapy, um, at least in this episode. So, you know, it's really important if you get a diagnosis of of breast cancer, I'm going to focus on that too as well, because clearly that's what my talk is on, to think about if you're premenopausal or postmenopausal at diagnosis. And if you're premenopausal, that's really important because you're probably going to undergo a sudden kind of menopause because either by chemically inducing menopause or surgically inducing menopause and taking out your ovaries to reduce uh, estrogen oftentimes, which is a risk factor and often which we want to kind of decrease that, that endocrine component to treat and prevent recurrence of breast cancer, assuming it's at least weekly estrogen receptor positive, you're going to be put into sudden menopause. 
and sudden certainly means sudden. And, and I think for most women, that suddenness really means that you don't really get uh, to go through perimenopause. And the, the biological evolution of perimenopause, in my opinion, is potentially to help the woman adjust over time to the declining estrogen levels so that once you are in menopause and postmenopausal, your body has had some time to basically adjust. Whether it's fun or not, that's certainly up for debate. But with sudden menopause, it's much more severe and the symptoms are really a lot more pronounced, including vasomotor symptoms, um, which is hot flashes during the day and night sweats at night, sleep disturbances, cognitive changes, vaginal dryness can be really, really sudden and not just physically, but psychologically. And this is important because unlike something like premature ovarian insufficiency, where, you know, over time you've realized your periods have stopped and then you try and figure out what this diagnosis is and, oh, okay, it's early premature menopause. Sudden is just like one day, the next, your life just gets flipped upside down. And so it's not just a physiologic change that's very sudden. It's a sudden psychological change. And that's really important. And you're going to be using probably medications again to reduce your estrogen, whether it's something, you know, that could be particularly difficult like Lupron, or maybe you're on uh, tamoxifen, which is a CERM medication. Uh, or, uh, you know, if you're postmenopausal, actually, you might be on an aromatase inhibitor, which is also like a little Pac-Man that eats up, you know, any, any little microscopic estrogen particle. And if you're postmenopausal, I think what's uh, important to note there is that uh, some women are going to have to either wean down or come off hormone therapy, not the majority because the majority of women don't use hormone therapy in the United States, but that is a consideration, something I do see patients for over time. And that can be really difficult or you can get boomerang symptoms, Uh, sort of this idea that symptoms like resurge or recur or return, you know, let's say you're using an aromatase inhibitor in your sixties, but menopause was five to seven to 10 years ago. As you're using that aromatase inhibitor, you might get a recurrence or resurgence of your classic menopausal symptoms. Just like we talked about hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, brain fog, metabolic changes. And that's, you know, just as confusing as sudden menopause, because really, uh, you, you kind of have already given yourself the badge of honor of going through menopause. Then, you know, for many women, they have to undergo this again. And, you know, that it's really hard. And the idea is balancing good quality of life with the benefits that you're going to get from, you know, treating and risk reducing that that's really what it comes down to. So we think about hot flashes. What are the non-hormonal options, you know, to use for uh, treating hot flashes? Well, there's one and only one FDA-approved medication for treating vasomotor symptoms, and that is Brisdel. And Brisdel is uh, uh, actually a ultra-low dose of an SSRI or antidepressants, Paxil, which is also known as a generic name paroxetine. So Brisdell is actually kind of expensive, not always covered by insurance, which is super frustrating because you'd think it being the one and only one FDA approved medication for hot flashes that insurance would cover it, but not, not always. The way I get around this, therefore, is I often prescribe a Paxil 10 milligrams because Paxil 10 milligrams is really close to Brisdell 7.5 milligrams when Brisdell is 
pretty much Paxil. So Paxil is an SSRI that can help reduce hot flashes. And um, that's used off-label if you're not using the FDA-approved on-label Bristel. Again, little nuance because Bristel is expensive. Again, makes no sense. So the, uh, there's other SSRIs and SNRIs that are all actually used off-label at the lowest dose to help blunt hot flashes. And the reason we prescribe these is not because we secretly think you have depression um, or that by treating depression, it's going to treat hot flashes. But the theory is that potentially that extra serotonin that's around in the brain is helping either improve the window of vulnerability for temperature irregularities, which is what could be causing and triggering hot flashes, or just somehow that extra serotonin is blunting those hot flashes. And so its purpose is to reduce the severity or the frequency of hot flashes. These other off-label SSRIs or SNRIs include medications that you may have heard of and most commonly are uh, used. So that's citalopram, uh, 10 milligrams to 20 milligrams in that range, also known as Celexa. There's escitalopram, um, about 5 to 10 to 20 milligrams, also known as Lexapro. There's um, SNRIs, and there's two really common SNRIs that we use. One is venlafaxine, also known as Effexor, and deslafaxine, also known as Prestique. And you don't need to memorize those by any means. Um, and this is certainly something I could cover in a class. Um, but it is nice to know that there are a couple of options. And looking at the effectiveness of these medications, uh, the most recent data I saw showed that Prestique or the Deslafexine was actually the most effective in reducing vasomotor symptoms, uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 45 to 60% reduction, which is actually pretty markedly um, imp bigger, better than uh, the others, which have about a 30 to 45% um, reduction in hot flash severity or frequency. So there you have it. Those are the uh, SSRI, SNRI class. If you heard a bunch of dinging before this and you're looking in your purse to figure out who's texting you, spoiler alert, it is my Mac, uh, MacBook Pro. And I, I just I, like, have are you ever on these group texts that just like don't stop and like you love them? I'm that friend that never responds, but I kind of giggle and laugh, but I'm just, I never actually can respond with like a meme or like a throwback photo, but all my girlfriends can. And that was what was just happening in the last couple of minutes. And as you know, I just like to keep things real here. Now, something that you're going to want to discuss with your oncologist uh, is the fact that some medications used to treat and prevent recurrence of the breast cancer or other cancers, but particularly tamoxifen, which is used often in premenopausal women, that those medications may interact with each other and they can reduce their overall efficacy. So you certainly don't want to reduce the efficacy of, say, the tamoxifen if you're using that to prevent recurrence of breast cancer. You certainly might want to know, right, uh, what's causing what. So, it, you know, it's always important that you have a discussion about medication interactions with your doctor. But I wanted to point this out here because one of the most uh, common and well-known interactions is that of SSRIs and tamoxifen. All right. So what are the other options that, that we have in our, in our file cabinet here. 
Well, so next up is a medication called gabapentin. Gabapentin is a medication commonly used for neuropathy, i.e. nerve pain. And uh, at low doses, uh, effective doses of about 100 to 300 milligrams, um, that's really low for this medication because it ranges all the way up to, I believe, 2,700 milligrams. But those low doses can help blunt hot flashes for the same reasons that I discussed with the SSRIs. And uh, the, the main side effect from gabapentin is that it can make you feel a little sleepy and it's just not as effective as the SSRIs or SNRIs. However, that being said, if you have neuropathic pain or anything where you may have used gabapentin or you might need gabapentin, you know, if it's, it's always helpful to see if these two can coincide and that's going to be the medication that you pick. Another option in this class of non-hormonal medications is uh, oxybutynin. And oxybutynin is a medication for overactive bladder. That's what it's FDA approved for. However, studies have shown it is somewhat effective in reducing vasomotor symptoms. And especially if you have any overactive bladder symptoms, that's going to be a good one that you can kind of match up if you're not a candidate for hormone therapy or if you've tried SSRIs or those didn't work for you. I've had actually some patients get good success with the oxybutynin. And then the last one is clonidine. Clonidine is actually an old antihypertensive medication. And so it's, it's actually has the lowest efficacy in helping blunt hot flashes, but it is a good consideration if someone has kind of tried several medications on this list here, either they've caused side effects or if they've not been helpful and, or she has a little bit of high blood pressure. Now you don't have to have high blood pressure to use this medication, but because it can lower your blood pressure, you do want to be mindful that you don't have any lightheadedness or dizziness after taking it. So next up, let's tackle vulvovaginal atrophy or genitourinary syndrome of menopause. This is a really big problem with anyone undergoing menopause and, and, and cancer treatments. Whatever kind of cancer treatment it may be, it does seem to accelerate uh, and worsen the issue. It's the tissue is the issue. And the pH of the vagina really becomes much more basic. That pH starts to increase, which causes all sorts of downstream effects. And that includes vaginal dryness, painful intercourse, and importantly, recurrent urinary tract infections. And it is important to remember that last one, because most of the time we forget about that. We think, oh, painful intercourse, but well, you can live without intercourse, but it shouldn't have to be one or the other. So when it comes to uh, the safety of vaginal estrogen and history of cancer, most of my oncology colleagues are becoming much more familiar and okay with the use of local vaginal estrogens. And when I say local vaginal, what I mean is local estrogen that treats just the vagina and not just the vagina. That means, you know, the vulva and the labia, the bladder and the urethra, but I say vagina for sure because we all kind of do. And they're becoming more and more okay with this because of how severe the GSM can become and how significantly that can negatively impact quality of life going forward. We want you to be able to do simple things like walk and sit and stand without feeling like there's sandpaper that's rubbing against each other. And we certainly want you to be able to have a satisfying sex life. And these things can, you know, especially sexual health can fall to the wayside and not be a priority for a minute. And that's a okay, but 
ultimately when you are improved, we don't want to completely obliterate that, that area, that part of your body, uh, because then we're going to be so much farther behind the eight ball as we're trying to treat you. So what I always say is we definitely want you on a vaginal moisturizer from like day one. And a vaginal moisturizer is usually in our like hyaluronic acid um, with some vitamins. So Fem Pharma has a great one. They've been a sponsor of mine on the podcast before, and they make a moisturizer with vitamin E and hyaluronic acid. Uh, Sweet Spots Labs is another great product that has great vaginal moisturizers. And I would also know I've been able to use their products and I am on their scientific advisory board. Um, there's uh, uh, lots of different kinds of moisturizers that you can get and that you can try. I've got a couple other listed on my Amazon website, but really you want to look for something that really is mostly hyaluronic acid and otherwise, you know, doesn't have any other chemicals or, you know, active ingredients in it. You want it to be really free of, of many ingredients, but have something that can increase the moisture of the tissue. And that just essentially means locking in hydration to keep the tissue a little bit more plump so that you don't have things as much like tearing or what feels like burning because you've just got a little bit thicker uh, tissue, like a thicker barrier. Okay. Now you can certainly talk to your doctors about vaginal estrogens as well because they can be very preventative and they can be used before you even have severe symptoms. Um, and all the local vaginal estrogens are, uh, can be really effective and, you know, we could use the lowest effective dose. So in Vixie, for example, which is this little jelly bean like insert comes in an ultra low dose for micrograms and you could do that twice a week. And they also make a 10 microgram, which one is the right one for you? You know, it's, it's really, again, an individualized decision discussion between you and your doctor, but both of those are available. Uh, there's also, you know, Vagifem, which is a suppository, which goes in with a little applicator and esterase cream, which is exactly what it sounds like cream that also comes in uh, conjugated equine estrogen, as well as estradiol, which is the esterase. And then there is something called the E-string. I always call it the E-string. It's just my way of, of looking at that word and saying it out loud. That's another good set it and forget it option as well. So the other things that you might want to consider in terms of vaginal atrophy are if you need pelvic floor physical therapy, and I've done whole episodes on pelvic floor physical therapy, and this is really important if you're having either, um, vaginismus, which is where your muscles contract and the, in the vaginal tissues, um, atrophy and, and those muscles become very tight, leading to essentially almost like a closure of the, of the vagina. And if your goal is to have penetration, then you certainly going to want to use physical therapy, learn how to retrain those muscles, relax those muscles, and maybe use a dilator to just ever so gently learn, expand that tissue in a way that's not going to be traumatic or recause pain. Sometimes that can happen. So you've got to, you know, tread, tread slowly and, and have a professional with you, which is why I really, really work very closely with our pelvic floor physical therapists. And then there are some over-the-counter things that you can buy in the way of um, either dilators. Um, a really good one is also the Millie device. They've been a, a sponsor of my show in the past. I really like this device because it's one device that you can increase. Uh, and so it, it dilates with you as opposed to having like a trunk full of all these different sizes and colors, although many people use those and like those as well. So I like the Millie device. 
Now I haven't mentioned lubricants yet and lubricants get confused with moisturizers a lot and lubricants really should be used to make it slippery. So mostly for foreplay or for sex, you're going to want a lubricant. I would not use a lubricant on a daily basis, but I would use a moisturizer on a daily basis. So Uber lube and slippery stuff, or even coconut oil or olive oil that you have in your home are really good options for lubrication. All right, now on to some fun stuff. What can we do about lowering libido? This is really common. And again, it's not just that it's common in women who can't use hormone therapy. It's common across the board. All women going through menopause do have an increased risk for hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is essentially low libido that is bothersome to you. Low libido that's not bothersome to you is not a medical condition and there's nothing that you need to do anything about if it doesn't bother you in your current situation or with your partner. But there are two FDA approved medications for low libido that are absolutely okay to use in our cancer population. The first is phlebanserine, also known as its brand name, Addy. And phlebanserine is a medication that works to increase dopamine in your brain. It's non-hormonal, which means that it is usually almost always safe to use. Um, you know, what I do is I always relay any medications I'm going to use with their oncologist just to triple check, but there are no real indications that I've really come across. And Addy is a once daily oral medication that is FDA approved for low libido in premenopausal women. Now, don't let this worry you. I do use it quite frequently off label for women who are menopausal. It's just that in the studies that were being undertaken, they used premenopausal women. And certainly premenopausal women also have low desire and it's problematic to them as well. So it's not just a menopausal issue, but certainly is something that seems to be very common, at least in my world, postmenopausally. So we can use this medication Addy as a once daily oral medication for bothersome low sexual desire disorder. The other medication is called Vilesi, and its generic name is bromanolanotide. And this is an as-needed injectable FDA-approved for low libido, also in premenopausal women, but the same thing applies here is that I use it very commonly in my women who are postmenopausal. And what's nice about this is it's an as-needed medication. So it's an on an as-needed basis. You don't have to add a daily medication to your regimen. And, and for some people, that's really nice. So this is certainly a medication that is, uh, again, used less frequently. It's about $100 for a box of four of these. So certainly if you're going to be using them on a basis more than that, you're probably going to want to go to the once daily oral medication. But I have some tricks up my sleeve on how to get this medication a little bit cheaper through specialty pharmacies. So that's another thing that we can do. But, you know, if you're using more than four in a month or one in a week, it's probably a sign that you might want something daily. Um, but this has a lot of benefits and also because it's non-hormonal is certainly also considered, you know, fairly safe again with all of the same, you know, pretext for Addy I give to Vilesi. I always let my oncologist know what we're considering and doing in case there are any interactions or, you know, just addressing any of the oncologist questions about the medication. And this leads kind of right into the, my summary of this podcast today, which is that 
the patient shouldn't have to be the one in the middle. And I find that that has happened on occasion and it's not ideal. It's not ideal for the physicians and it's definitely not ideal for the patient. You know, it's so frustrating when one doctor says one thing and another doctor says the complete opposite. Maybe it's about the safety of a medication. One doctor says, absolutely, you can't take that. That's contraindicated. That's not safe for you. And then you have another doctor saying, oh, certainly this is, I don't see why there's any contraindications. As the patient in the middle, if you pick one or the other, you feel as though you're kind of betraying one of your clinicians. And that's never a situation that you should have to feel that you're in. So I always like to communicate with my oncologist. And this is, you know, certainly because of the reasons that oncologists become a huge, huge, huge integral part of that patient's life and help them make a lot of decisions. And so it's nice for the patient to say and feel that we've talked and we both agree on a particular plan. So, you know, I think this has been a really fun episode for just reminding folks a couple of things. One, there are other options besides hormone therapy. There are options for women who have breast cancer or other contraindications to hormone therapy, but still are okay with pharmacology to help with their symptoms. And there's even more things besides for this. You know, there's lots of wearables, there's lots of cooling clothing and sheets and you know, all sorts of different things being developed to help women, um, reduce symptoms of menopause. So that's great. There's like a lot of things that are coming down the pipeline. So, um, and yes, there are special considerations. There are special circumstances. So I certainly have had patients who have really wanted hormone therapy after a diagnosis of cancer. That is a very, very detailed conversation. Me and oncologist will have together with the patient discussing her quality of life risks and benefits. I've had some women use topical testosterone after a cancer diagnosis for low libido and neither of those two options, hormone therapy or testosterone replacement, I discussed in the entirety of this podcast. But again, that's just because these are truly often offsets and, and very individualized. So it's really hard to make a complete episode um, with those, uh, those you know, outliers, outliers, <laughs> outliers um, in, in front and center. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please give it a star or a few reviews. Share it um, a across your groups, especially your Facebook groups. If you're a cancer survivor, if you've had breast cancer, if you're interested in signing up for uh, the course that I'm going to hopefully put together maybe over the summer, which is menopausal symptom management in uh, cancer survivors, definitely follow me over on Instagram. I'm at Heather Hirsch MD. I used to be hormone health doc, but I changed my name with my book coming out so that everything was, um, the same. Um, my website is getting completely updated so you can sign up for my email list there so that you can stay up to date on when this course hopefully might be rolling out um, for admission. Hopefully again, summertime, fallish. It, it really depends. My schedule is pretty damn packed and I have a lot of work to do. So, um, but you can stay up to date there with what I am, what I'm up to. So thank you guys so, so much for listening in. I love seeing this podcast grow. I can't believe we're really reaching the top of the medicine charts on Apple podcasts. And I see so many new subscribers and listeners, and thank you so much for all your kind words. I really do appreciate it because it really does give me the motivation to sit down and keep making these episodes for you.
If I haven't already done so, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to my show. Consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. Also, if you love the show, your stars or a quick review could really help other women who are searching for information on menopause and midlife around the globe find this show. If you want to work with me, consider the Reclaiming Menopause Masterclass. The link for that is in the description to this show. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all your support, and I'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Good.